0: Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman, and we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Center's podcast.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm so happy to see your faces and feel your presence. Um, I would like to, first of all, thank Miami Life Center for putting on this series and inviting me here today to talk. Um, I've participated in other events. We had a last year. We had a panel with five people or six people on yoga and trauma. And actually, part two of that discussion is coming up at the end of this month. So, yoga and trauma panel discussion with with me and four other um, panelists, and it would be moderated by Kino McGregor, who is one of the founders of this studio, along with Tim Feldman. Um, I'm sure Tim will be present as well if he's not moderating also. So it's going to be a a dynamic and sometimes challenging and and deeply reflective discussion on some thorny aspects of the intersection of our worlds of yoga and our potential experiences that we bring to it of trauma, whether that's personal trauma. Societal trauma that is inflicted on us, generational trauma, um, issues of race and gender, um, issues of sexual abuse in the yoga world, um, issues of guru worship and disciple relationships, and how problematic that is in terms of trauma. So it's it's a wide-ranging discussion and um, a very necessary one to have for everyone in the yoga world and everyone in the Buddhist world. Um, I kind of come from both perspectives, yoga and Buddhism. And the other panelists will include a couple of psychologists um, and people who teach as I do and Adrian does in situations and communities and, and institutions where people, for example, are homeless and therefore have suffered an enormous amount of trauma, teaching yoga to them or meditation Or in a prison, where there's obviously a tremendous amount of trauma, not only that has brought them there, but that they're experiencing there in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, In hospitals, where medical residents and doctors experience levels of stress and burnout and depression and suicide that are an order of magnitude higher than the general population. So and working with teens at risk who are struggling with mental health issues or substance abuse issues and helping them through what's called mental, mental health first aid to find a way to recover and maybe not go down the path that eventually leads to a lot of teen suicide. So we're doing a lot of this kind of work through our foundation, the Warrior Flow Foundation Um, You can find that on the web at warriorflowfoundation.org. We're offering uh, training next weekend in trauma-informed yoga and mindfulness for community outreach. And that's happening here in Miami at a place called The Saguary, February 8th and 9th, Saturday and Sunday, most of the day, both days. And there are still a couple of spaces open if that is a subject that you want to dive into and learn about. And Adrian is the main instructor of that. Adrian Molina, who's my partner, and um, he's here on the front, is the main instructor of that training. And I co-teach it with him. So we'll both be there. And I just wanna say a personal word of thanks to um, Kino, McGregor and Tim Feldman um, who have provided so many opportunities for us to come together in this space, to come together online through OMSTARS. Um, you, you can find a lot of my classes, my meditation classes, Joseph's yoga classes, Adrian's yoga classes on, online at OMSTARS and Kino and, and Tim and so many other teachers. Um, on Omstars.com, both. liberal there w- For a while, there were live streaming classes that you could tune into live that's on pause for the moment, but there are hundreds, would you say thousands? Hundreds, hundreds of classes available and courses also. So I recently f- finished filming a 10-session course on loving-kindness meditation, and that is in the editing stage, which will take a few months, and then it'll be available on Omstars. As a course that you can you, you can you can get and follow along for the whole ten sessions. But already there, I have a lot of classes there that you can watch um, on different kinds of meditation, and I have a couple of courses too that that are like multi-class courses. And Joseph has some really great stuff, and Adrian does as well. Courses and classes, so please check it out so this is a kind of most of you have been to one of these before it's called chat and chai and it's just kind of an informal coming together of minds and hearts to have a discussion about a topic and i'll I'll tell you what the topic is today and i'll talk a little bit about it but i also want to invite you to talk as well make it a conversation don't let me just run on too much at the mouth Because this is a rich conversation that I hope it's meaningful to everybody and everybody feels like they have something to say about it. Um, And it will be the reason it's called Chat and Chai is that's associated with what's called the Chat and Chai podcast produced by Miami Life Center. So some of you are watching live on Facebook now, and um, whether you're watching live or you're here in person, you will have the opportunity later when it's released to uh, listen to this talk again on the Miami Life Center podcast called Chat and Chai. You can subscribe to it on whatever podcast channel you like, Apple, uh, probably Amazon, I don't know, Google, wherever you find podcasts. And last but not least... Just a couple more announcements before we really dive into the subject. Um, My new initiative that I've started is called, Joseph mentioned it at the beginning, it's called Clarity, Dharma, and Meditation Collective. And I started it because I perceived a need in the Miami community for really authentic, um, rooted in spiritual traditions, uh, discussion and teachings and practice of meditation and, and dharma When I say Dharma, I'm kind of referring to Buddha Dharma from the Buddhist tradition, but not always because I take my inspiration from many traditions. When he told you a little bit about my background and I was a Buddhist monk and I've studied Tibetan Buddhism for 20 years, um, obviously that's my cornerstone in terms of my spiritual training, but I don't like isms. So I don't like to say I'm a Buddhist, you know, I, I have so much that I've gotten from Buddhism and it's like I said, it's the cornerstone of my spiritual life But I also draw from yoga. I draw from Advaita Vedanta non-dual yoga philosophy. I draw from Teachers that I haven't even met in person, but I follow their teachings like uh, who Comes from a non-dual wisdom tradition as well as a Zen tradition I I draw from Teachers who are not who are part of the Buddhist world, but not even associated with the lineage that I was part of So, you know, like Christianity, it has many branches and they don't talk to each other all the time And they don't agree with each other about doctrines and things, but So like Sharon Salzberg, you know, part of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition One of the world's greatest teachers on loving kindness meditation Such an inspiration to me comes from a different tradition or lineage than I do but so what like draw wisdom wherever it can be drawn from Um, and respect all traditions unless you see something that's really problematic which is kind of like some of the stuff that we'll talk about in the trauma and yoga panel so you can find out more about this. New initiative at the website clarityishere.com, and one of the the first major event that we're doing. I'm really excited about it. is happening two Saturdays from now, on February 15th at Energy Meditation Studio here in South Beach, on Lennox and 16th. Um, Mary Beth is who's here is also a teacher at Energy. I teach there three times a week. You can find my classes there, and attend in person. Um, And Clarity Dharma Meditation Collective's first big event is going to be a one-day meditation retreat from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Saturday, February 15th. And there will be guided meditation at the beginning. Then there will be a lot of silence. There will be sitting meditation, walking meditation in silence. There'll be lunch, a vegan lunch provided in silence. Um, You're encouraged to stay within the container of the studio for the day so that you can really go inward and connect with yourself on a very deep level that we don't always get the chance to do when we're just practicing meditation here and there for 30 minutes in the morning or, you know, fitting it into our busy lives. When you do a retreat, even if it's just a one day retreat, you have an opportunity to almost like taking a quantum leap forward instead of inching slowly forward because you go, you have that time to spend with yourself, like say it's eight hours, which will be roughly what we're doing that day. Um, When you spend eight hours working with yourself, looking at your mind and what your mind does, seeing it, being with it, struggling with it, not struggling with it, coming to peace with it. then you you feel a shift in your practice that takes it deeper and I've done a lot of silent retreat Um, not only in the monastery for two years we would be silent most of the day every day for two years but also before that many many um, silent meditation retreats that were a day or a weekend or a week or a month and There's something about being together in community and being silent together that lets you take your practice to a different place. Um, And there will be Dharma talks like this that, you know, are part of the the retreat day. So you'll not only get to practice in silence, but you'll have the opportunity to hear some ideas and some, some inspiration to take into your practice and contemplate and see how it shifts the way you relate to your practice and to yourself. So, in case you forget the details, uh, for those of you who are here, I'm going to pass around cards, take one. It has the link to the website and the details about the retreat, and I hope you can make it. And the weekend before that, next weekend, I mentioned the training that Adrian and I are doing um, in trauma-informed yoga and mindfulness. You don't have to be a yoga teacher to take it if you're just interested in trauma and how to work with it skillfully in your own life or in working with others. That could be for you. So, today's talk, I chose the title, Shanti santosha, and samadhi, finding stillness and peace. How many people are familiar with those three Sanskrit words? Anybody? A little bit? Okay. I'll explain what they mean. But forget about the Sanskrit for a moment. And just the title... Um, finding the subtitle finding stillness and peace is what this talk is really about and how we do that and how we continually habitually um, prevent ourselves from doing that with our actions and our reactions and the way we um, often go through life tripping ourselves up with, with our own shoelaces tied in our minds So first of all, shanti. That word in Sanskrit means peace. You often see yogis saying, om, shanti, shanti, shanti. They're just saying, om, peace, peace, peace. So, we're all looking for peace. Is anyone not looking for peace? Please raise your hand. Okay. But what we tend to do and this applies across a lot of things we tend to look for peace that's going to come from the outside like we look for happiness that's going to come from the outside we think this thing that i'm going to get this relationship or this job or this home or this car or this um, arrangement of circumstances in my life is going to make me happy And we might even jump to the happy-ever-after story. and we think it's going to be permanent happiness. And then we really screw ourselves because nothing is permanent. Um, Happiness comes and goes, misery comes and goes. And we always get stuck in it and think it's forever. Like when we're miserable and we're depressed and we're angry, we think it's not going to change. I'm I'm always going to feel like this, but everything changes. Thoughts and feelings. Our bodies, our lives, relationships, everything changes. Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher, was asked to summarize Buddhism in a single phrase, and he said, everything changes. Buddhism in a nutshell. Everything changes. But we don't like that. We don't like to admit that the things we hold on to are going to change and turn into whatever they turn into and then we start to feel resistance against that thing becoming whatever it's becoming we don't have control over but we want it to stay the way it was when it was making us happy but now it's changing and we, we create so much resistance in our minds about that and so much suffering for ourselves and then we throw that suffering out to the other person or people and bring suffering to them. And the whole spiritual project of yoga and of Buddhism is about recognizing suffering and finding a way to reduce and eliminate unnecessary suffering. So we do that. In Buddhism, we talk about it in terms of the the Buddha's very first teaching, which was called the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is recognizing, oh shit, there's suffering, I'm suffering. Life it has, is full of suffering, I can't escape it. I can look away from it and pretend it's not there, which we do a lot. Or I can numb myself with you know, drugs or chemicals or sex or relationships or getting caught up in work, so I never have to stop and think about what I'm doing, what I'm feeling always running 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 for it in some way but then we when when we come to a stop and we, s- we sit down in meditation for example all the stuff that we've been avoiding is there and it's in our face and we have to be honest with ourselves we don't have to but we have the invitation to be honest with ourselves and and see that I'm suffering I have pain that, is coming from these things in me and these circumstances of my life situations other people myself and there's suffering and, it, and there's kind of this pervasive suffering in life even when things are going well temporarily everything things go well and then they don't go well and they go well and they don't go well but even when they're going well we kind of have this undercurrent like in the back of our mind like things just dis- dissatisfaction things are not quite satisfactory to us yet and we feel like we want something else or something more of what we have or we start to feel afraid of losing what we have and we get caught up in the mind of fear. Yoda said, you know, fear leads to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Something like that. I think I'm quoting him accurately. Maybe not. Everybody know Yoda? (laughs) Okay. Fear leads to the dark side. (laughs) Um, But we get so caught up in it. And so the, the second noble truth in Buddhism is... First is admit suffering the truth of suffering recognize it be honest with yourself about it the second is recognize that there's a cause of suffering so this follows was an old um, ayurvedic medical diagnosti- diagnostic <coughs> model where you recognize the illness, the cause of the illness, you find out whether the illness can be cured, and then you apply the cure. Those are the four steps. So the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths in that way, on a spiritual level. So recognizing the truth of suffering, recognizing that suffering has a cause that can be identified, recognizing that there is a possible possibility of bringing ourselves away from that suffering out of that suffering and finding freedom from it and then applying the steps and the path that lead to freedom from suffering or what's called cessation of suffering and we get mixed up in our minds about that those words because we're always going to have pain and we think that's suffering you know we're always going to have painful circumstances in our lives things that we know the doctor gives us that diagnosis we didn't want to hear our partner of so many years suddenly leaves and we're heartbroken our one of our parents dies and we're heartbroken um, a friend commits suicide we're heartbroken uh, a friend gets addicted to drugs and we're heartbroken <coughs> There's all this suffering that is choiceless. But despite the fact that we don't have any choice about all that, the choice that we have and that no one can take away from us is the choice of how we respond to the situation. So we can either choose unconsciously perhaps to respond in our what might be our habitual way which is fighting and struggling with the pain and trying to get rid of it and and causing ourselves to suffer more because we're getting very caught up in the anguish about the suffering which just creates more suffering for us and then that spills out into the world around us creates more suffering for others because we act on our feelings or we can choose And we can make, we can most easily make this other choice when we have a grounding of meditation and we've created some space in our minds to be able to see our thoughts and our feelings and not get so hooked by them. And be able to make a different decision about how we're going to respond to the circumstances. So the painful trigger comes, the moment of heartbreak we can either act out against it the way we usually do and stay trapped in cycles of suffering about it or we can recognize that this hurts but I don't need to make it worse because that's only going to hurt me more so I can choose how I respond to this situation in a way that doesn't magnify it and create unnecessary suffering <coughs> So. Necessary suffering is not really the right word for the pain that happens to us in our lives. We feel like it's so unnecessary, right? When painful things come. But we don't have control over necessarily over those things that come. They just come. And we have to face it, deal with it somehow, or try to escape it. But again, what we do have a choice over is how we respond to it. And we can respond in a way that's skillful and leads us towards some kind of sense of freedom in at least freedom in the way we relate to the pain you know if I have a physical illness and it's causing me a lot of suffering I can relate to that illness in an anguished way mentally that creates more suffering for me or I can re- choose to relate to that illness and try to relate to it in a way that is just accepting this is the reality that has presented itself this is the unwelcome guest that has shown up at my door and I don't have a choice about their presence but what I have a choice about is how I welcome or don't welcome them how I respond to them and if I get caught up in that mind of struggling and aversion and resisting what's happening then I'm going to war with reality and when we go to war with reality we always lose reality always wins gravity always wins except when we fly in airplanes So reality always wins, like we can't. We can change the circumstances in our lives to some degree, but there are things that we don't have choices about, and things that hurt us. And when they come and they hurt us, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit, but we have a choice about how we respond. I'm teaching a course right now to a very um, traumatized population, uh, it's it's about mindfulness and it's also about man's search for meaning bringing the two subjects together and seeing what comes out of that practicing mindfulness and also reading this book which many of you may have heard of Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl it's more than 15 million copies of this book are in print in many languages um, it's one of the defining books of the 20th century. Uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It will change your life when you read this book. Viktor Frankl was um, a psychiatrist in the early half of the, early two thirds of the 20th century, I guess. And he was Jewish and he was in Europe when World War II broke out and he was captured by the Nazis and taken to Auschwitz (coughs) and uh, and other concentration camps. (coughs) And he wrote this book. He began to write it in his mind while he was there at Auschwitz, going through those experiences. And, And then he wrote this book when he got out and it became the cornerstone for his branch of psychology that he developed, therapy called Logotherapy, which is another discussion. But the thing that kind of defines his, his takeaway his take from that peak traumatic experience, like how, how can it get more traumatic than being taken to Auschwitz? And you walk in a single file line after you get off the packed, crowded trains that you've been on for several days and single file, you go up to a, a Nazi officer and he's holding up his finger and he looks at you and he waves his finger in one direction or the other. And that decides life or death at that moment. Because if he waves his finger this way, you're going into the camp and you're going to work as a slave. And there's this lie that's written over the gate in German, Arbeit frei," which translates as work will set you free. So they're lying, you know, This big lie that they're going to work their way out of the concentration camp. N- none of them are ever going to leave, unless, you know, th- some of them did because finally the camps were freed uh, at the end of World War II, but very few survived, and there were rumors that the you know, the people who were taken there had already started hearing about what was going on in the concentration camps, but nobody really knew for certain. So when they arrived, and they file in this line, and he waves his finger one way or the other, the ones who are waved into the camp to become camp residents, inmates, prisoners, that's going to be their life. and. They have no control over it and the suffering that's going to come to them. The pain and the horror and the trauma that's going to come to them. That guard, if he waves his finger in the other direction, you're given a bar of soap and you're herded off to what you're told are showers. And you're herded off with 100 or 200 other people at a time into a room and the, above the door, when you walk go into this room, it says baths in several languages. So whatever, whatever country you're coming from, or whatever language you speak, it says you recognize that it says bath, shower, whatever. I visited Auschwitz and I've seen these things. I saw th- this place that I'm talking about. That room that they walked into. It's still there. You can see it if you go there. They walk into that room and the door closes, and they still think, some of them who don't know what's happening, still think that there's going to be a shower in there, Mm -hmm. and there are shower heads in the ceiling, and they think, now the door door is closed, the water's going to be turned on, and they're going to bathe with this bar of soap that they were given. But what's turned on instead is poisonous gas that kills them all in that room. And if you go there, you can see claw marks on the wall where they tried to escape their death in that that room. And then another room over down the hallway are the ovens where their bodies were just taken from that room and put straight into the ovens and burned. So I'm talking about a situation of extreme suffering and trauma that Many of us have a hard time even imagining the, the degree of suffering that was there. And Viktor Frankl went into that and he survived. And he wrote about what he felt helped him survive and you know, why he thinks that he survived and other people didn't, while many others didn't. And he says that it didn't come down to who had another spoonful of soup or who had a, a better blanket or who got assigned to a, a better work detail that didn't involve being outside in the freezing cold with no coat, building train tracks, or, you know, it didn't depend so much. Of course, the outer circumstances helped determine whether someone was going to live or die in that camp. but. Really, when he reflected on it, he said it didn't depend so much on that. It depended more on their attitude towards what was happening to them and how they related to it, how they let it either break their soul or whether they found some meaning in their suffering, even if it was just maintaining some hope about the future. I have like, I have the book, but I also have the dummies guide to the book, which is a summary of man's search for meaning. And it says, it's easy for a book about the Holocaust to focus solely on the suffering that camp inmates experienced. However, man's search for meaning chooses to focus instead on the sources of strength that helped each individual deal with their unique experiences in camp life. One's attitude in camp more than anything else, was the deciding factor for who lived and who died. Some focused on their hopes for life after camp, if they believed they were going to get out, or that there was a hope for getting out, maybe. Many dreamed of seeing their loved ones again when they get out. Others still found solace in focusing on their professional lives and their ambitions and what they want to go back to and achieve when they get out, if they get out. Whatever the case, those who survived were the ones who found meaning to their suffering in the way that they handled it on a day-to-day basis. Does that make sense? What does it, it provoke in you? I guess I'm asking, do you relate to that in your own life? This, about the, the suffering that you experience and whether you can let it crush you or you can relate to it in a different way that that doesn't allow it to crush you. You can find meaning in your life, even if there's suffering that you didn't choose and you can't control. Viktor Frankl in his book wrote forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation no one can take that away from you can you hear me no one can take away your freedom to choose how you respond to whatever situation is presenting itself to you in the moment the moment the situation is always changing because every moment, everything is changing. Go back to Suzuki Roshi's two word summary of Buddhism, 2600 years of Buddhism and in two words, everything changes. But no one can take away our choice about how we respond to the changes. we can take it away from ourselves, I guess, because we can get caught up in our patterns, our conditioning, our mental habits of relating to things in in an unskillful way. And we don't see that we have a choice about how to respond, but we always do. And that's part of what meditation helps us see and cultivate is recognizing that we can choose how we respond to things. When troubling thoughts and feelings come Our tendency is to react on autopilot in whatever way we feel we need to react, if it's anger, pushing something away, trying to keep something, um, trying to get more of it. Whatever it is, we often react without thinking. There's no space between the stimulus and response. That's one of the other things that Viktor Frankl said. Between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space, lies our power to choose how we respond. And in how we respond lies our potential for freedom. Not the freedom of making things go away that are painful, because we can't, we can't always control that, but the freedom of choosing not to make it worse, not to create unnecessary suffering. The Buddha called it the second arrow, So, in life, we get shot with an arrow of a painful situation, something we didn't want, something that feels very unwelcome in our lives and hurts. But then, there's a second arrow that is like making the suffering worse. And we have a choice about whether we get shot with the second arrow. Because really, if if we do, we're the ones who are shooting ourselves with it. And it's in how we react to our suffering. We don't have to shoot ourselves with the second arrow. We may not have a choice about the first arrow because it just came out of nowhere. But our hand is on the bow and whether we get shot with the second arrow is up to us. Does that make sense? So, Shanti, the word that we started out talking about, means peace. And we're all looking for peace. But, maybe some of you know that old country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Anybody know that? That's what we do. We're looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for peace in all the wrong places. Looking for freedom from suffering in all the wrong places. Because we're always looking out there at, at circumstances and things and people and possessions, experiences. But it all comes from inside. It's in here. It's in your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart, your mind, your mind. And it's in the way you respond in each moment to whatever you're going through at that moment. That's the key to unlock the experience of peace in your life. Choosing how you respond to it and not going to the old ways you might have of responding to things that were problematic. If you have a past of, you know, you you experienced drug addiction in the past, you were reacting in the past in a way that you thought was alleviating your suffering in that moment but down the line, it only created more suffering for you. And in in this moment, when when pain comes again, if you act out that way again, you're reinforcing the pattern and you're just creating more suffering for yourself. The second arrow. You can always choose not to be shot by the second arrow. The other word in the title, another one of the other two Sanskrit words in the title of this talk is santosha. Anybody know what santosha means in English? Contentment. Contentment. So, we talked a little while ago about, you know, suffering and the pervasive sort of discontent that underlies our lives. And it's hardwired into us in our biology neuroscientists call it the (coughs) negative the negativity bias which is based on our um, evolutionary biology thousands of years ago hundreds of thousands of years ago our ancestors had to run from a saber-toothed tiger you know or a bear or a lion or a a woolly mammoth or uh, things that don't exist anymore and they they evolved with this brain that is very alert to threats, dangers. And it had to be. That's how they survived. It's not a bad thing. But we've carried that evolutionary biology and that way of being always on guard against what might be a a threat into our lives today because it's hardwired into our biology and our neurobiology. So the brain has a negativity bias. It tends to look for the problems And it tends to magnify the problems and kind of shoot ourselves with the second arrow, right? Because we're we're creating unnecessary ideas about our suffering. So the negativity bias means that there's a great expression from a neuroscientist and um, meditator teacher of meditation named rick hansen i forget the title of his book but he said that the brain is like um, what's it called velcro the brain is like velcro for negative experiences in other words they come and they they tend to stick to the brain, negative experiences. And the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences. Teflon is that coating on cookware that makes things nonstick. So negative experiences come to us and we have a biological, neurobiological tendency to get attached to the negative thing, to the suffering. And that's where we shoot the second arrow because we, we magnify our suffering either through the way we relate to it or the actions that we take in response to it. And positive experiences come to us. And because we're so hardwired by our neurobiology to look for threats and dangers and negative things, they come, but they don't really stick. They slide away more easily. And we go back to thinking about the danger and the threat and the fear and suffering just keeps getting manufactured. We, we don't have a choice about that, really, because that's our neurobiology. We, we're going to have that tendency in our lives. But again, we do have a choice in every moment about how we respond. So we, if we can see that we're doing that, then we have a choice about stepping out of it and reacting, or responding, rather, in a different way to whatever situation is currently happening. One of the biggest things that keeps us spinning in cycles of suffering, like a hurricane, is discontentment, not being satisfied with the way things are, fighting with the way things are, going to war with reality, um, and and never letting ourselves rest in a mind of gratitude for what we have, the blessings that we have the life that we have, never letting ourselves rest in a sense of contentment and peace with our lives as they are, never letting ourselves rest with acceptance of who we are rather than all the ideas about who we think we should be and other people should be. And. The world would be finally be fine if you would only just stop being the way you are and be the way i think you should be is that ringing any bells for anyone we do that all the time so again through our meditation practice we can and our yoga practice because yoga and meditation We tend to think in modern society that they're two different things you know that meditation is sitting still and yoga is moving and doing all these fancy postures Um, and there's the physical part of yoga that we see in magazines and you know we think yoga is just physical but there is no difference between yoga and meditation even even historically if you look at where our modern yoga came from 6,000 years ago. The earliest texts that we know of that said anything about yoga and asanas, postures, just showed and talked about sitting postures for meditation. And then, you know, much later, they developed all these fancy postures and, and flows and movements that do things to the body move the energy in the body in a different way to help the body awaken help the body be clear and calm and that facilitates clarity and calmness and steadiness in our minds that's the goal that you hear set out at the very beginning of the Yoga Sutras Yogas Chitta vritti Nirodaha in Sanskrit which means translated so many different ways by different translators but it means Yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind stuff. And it goes on to spell out in a lot of detail what um, Patanjali, the the purported author of the Yoga Sutras, meant by that. But really, it's, it's very much like the central message of Buddhism. The spiritual path awakening is about recognizing the agitation in our minds and the things that cause it and engaging in the path that leads to the reduction and the cessation of that agitation so that we can find peace and clarity and when we find peace and clarity in ourselves then we relate to our lives in a completely different way from a place of peace and clarity. And so many of the problems that we see around us in the world today are because no one is relating to themselves and to others from a place of peace and clarity. Very few are. Not enough are. And it's up to each one of us to do that for ourselves in order to be able to share that with anyone else around us and start to make the world a better place and reduce suffering in the world so we do it for ourselves in order to be able to do it for others but if we haven't done it first for ourselves it's like put the oxygen mask on for yourself first and then help the person in the seat next to you if you haven't done the the work on yourself to cultivate inner peace and clarity and and tranquility of, of a kind, then you're not gonna be able to inspire that and share that in others. Bring it to them because you're not really living it. So one of the big keys for me, that one of the things that I find myself the last year or two thinking about a lot is just as an idea that it's not an idea, it's a it's an experience that lies at the heart of all this is in thinking about that metaphor that I used a moment ago of the hurricane that feels like our spinning lives. Chaos and pain and suffering and things out of control and, you know, the forward rush of life and its momentum and not being able to control everything. It's like this spinning hurricane. That f- that's what our life feels like a lot of the time. But, at the center of every hurricane is the eye of the hurricane. And what's happening in the eye of the hurricane? Stillness. Like, not all that spinning movement, stillness. And that's what actually makes the hurricane possible. It has this center that it spins around, that is almost like it's not part of the hurricane. The hurricane has to form itself around it in order to keep spinning, but the eye is what holds the hurricane together. And in the, in the eye of the hurricane, there's, the winds aren't blowing, the, the rain isn't falling maybe a little bit, not, but not like the hurricane. And there's a, there's a quality of peace that is, is momentary because then if you're in the eye, the other side of the hurricane is going to come next. But there in that moment, in, that, in the center of that hurricane, there's stillness. And that center of stillness is inside each one of us we may not always feel like we have access to it because a lot of stuff covers it up. A lot of patterns of movement, always being moving in our lives, always having to do something, always being busy, always plotting and thinking about the next thing or getting lost in daydreams about the past or feeling regret about something that happened or feeling hope and fear about something that might happen in the future. Something we want or we don't want or we hope or we fear. So many ways that we keep spinning in the hurricane and we never come into contact with the center of it, the eye that, I don't mean the letter I, I mean the eye (laughs) or the eye of the hurricane that lies within us. The the place of stillness. What the poet T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. trying to remember the other line that he said and, and that it's like the dance of Shiva creating the world. And he said that the dance in that, in that sp- place is the dance and there is only the dance. So through yoga, through meditation, through consistent practice of these things, we start to uncover get in touch with and be able to connect to our own place of inner stillness and we in meditation we primarily do that through actually practicing stillness so like if you come to the silent retreat day in a couple of weeks over energy meditation um, we'll be still a lot of the time and we'll be silent a lot of the time and that's what allows us to connect with the stillness within because we're creating a container for at least for the moment of stillness in our bodies in the situation that we're in we're just allowing ourselves an extended moment of stillness and calm at least trying you know then our minds do what our minds do but we gives r- give ourselves that opportunity to stay in this moment and to be calm and to be present and to experience whatever we experience and not get up and run away from it and sometimes it will feel calm and nice pleasant sometimes it will feel agitated and restless and fidgety or emotionally difficult but we We get to experience in the practice what, what I was talking about before which is in seeing every moment and seeing that in every moment we have a choice about how we respond whether we go off into fantasy land of our minds that we always typically go off into in our lives or we stay present and we stay open to what's here even if what's here kind of feels like it sucks, it's not what we wanted, or it's difficult, or it's on the other side, it's happy, it's giddy, it's, it's joyful. Whatever it is, we stay open to it and we know that it's temporary, like everything is temporary so we don't attach to it and we don't try to push it away. We don't go to war with reality we just practice recognizing reality for what it is and remaining open so the whole thing about you know, what is what is describing as the Four Noble Truths recognizing our suffering, how it manifests recognizing that it has a cause figuring out what that cause is recognizing that There's a possibility of actually bringing about the end of all this unnecessary suffering and then engaging in what we know to be the actions that lead us towards that outcome. It's much more than just sitting on the cushion and meditating or being on the yoga mat and practicing asanas. It's our whole lives. And there's much more broader teaching that we don't have time to go into today about the whole, you know, like in Buddhism, it would be called the Eightfold Noble Path, and it has eight, eight specific directives about how to live your life in a way that keeps you aligned with this direction of moving towards awakening, moving towards clarity and peace and, and um, freedom suffering so it it involves how we earn our livelihood it involves how we relate to other beings it involves how we speak and whether our words bring, bring suffering and harm to others it involves how we meditate and several other things are part of the Eightfold Noble Path So like, just take one of those, our livelihood. If we're earning our livelihood in a way that troubles our conscience, then our minds can't rest calmly in meditation. It's it's gonna be a, a stumbling block for us because our minds are gonna be troubled. And like the Yoga Sutra said, yoga is all about the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind stuff, cessation of the agitation of the mind. just essentially what buddhism is about too just different words, different traditions different approaches different ideas but it's not about the ideas or the approaches, it's about your life in this moment and how you choose to relate to it and all these are just tools to help you relate to it in a way that perhaps helps you and alleviates suffering for you And if that happens, then you can share that with people, and you can help alleviate their suffering. So all this talk about suffering, there's a, there's another, there's an elephant in the room that's not being talked about yet, which is compassion. Because when we clearly see suffering in ourselves, or in someone else, then a lot of things can happen in us in reaction to that. Um, We can feel like, I I, I don't like what that person's going through. I don't like to be around them because it feels icky and scary to me. Which is like feeling aversion and wanting to get away from what we perceive as suffering. What our sense of empathy perceives in another person that they're going through suffering. And we... We don't want to get involved. We want to turn away from the suffering because to feel it, to sense it, feels painful to us. Like we think we might catch it or something like a cold. But the more skillful response that's taught to us in yoga and Buddhism is when we perceive suffering to respond with compassion. Whether that's responding to ourselves, about our own suffering, and responding, creating compassion for ourselves, which we often just don't do. We beat ourselves up, and we think that we're broken, and we have all these ideas about how we should be, and we're not very compassionate towards ourselves. And it's really hard to be compassionate towards others if you're not compassionate towards yourself. So a big part of cultivating peace with ourselves and peace with our world and those around us is cultivating compassion and cultivating love and kindness. Yes.
0: Um, what happens? I often wonder, like, what happens when pain is
1: systematic? Yes. And like when you're confronted with something that is not under your control? Yes. But it's part of like a system of oppression. Yes. Like in the world. Yes. And for me, sometimes I think that the path
0: towards peace is to react to mm-hmm. it, you know, not staying just inside me and to I fight say it. About reality. Right. But sometimes I feel like the path towards peace is fight that reality. Right. So, how, how can I take this approach
1: into that? Thought? Yes such a good question and it's there's no easy answer to that question but it's all in how we choose to um, try to change the things that need to be changed in our world so we can do that from a place of you know the things like the racial injustice that we perceive in American culture can enrage us and make us angry because it's so unfair towards people of color and we can go out to try to change that with an attitude of anger and aggression towards the system and towards anybody who represents the system but going out and fighting that way with that mindset isn't skillful for us and it doesn't usually bring about the, the outcome that we want in relating to others because what they respond to is our anger, our aggression. Um, my teacher Pema Children wrote about this and she said this is in her book When Things Fall Apart which is such a good book. When Things Fall Apart and she said all over the world Everybody always strikes out at the enemy and pain escalates forever. Every day we could reflect on this and ask ourselves, am I going to add to the aggression in the world? Every day at the moment when things get edgy, we could just ask ourselves, am I going to practice peace or am I going to war? So a lot of times we get caught up and going to war. Like we, we we don't tend to think about things that way. We think that, you know, the soldiers are the ones who are going to war, and we're mad about that because the war is an unjust war, it's unnecessary, it's creating a lot of suffering. But we're also the ones who go to war in our minds and then against whoever we perceive as doing something wrong or participating in, A system of injustice in the world around us but what she's saying is that all that that attitude of going to war with injustice is is contributing to the the culture of war the the atmosphere of war in the world the atmosphere of injustice the atmosphere of anger the atmosphere of conflict and that there's a different way that we can relate to it. It does not mean that we become indifferent statues, sitting on our meditation cushion, cultivating bliss and peace for, you know, for our own narcissistic sake. That's not what the path of yoga and meditation is about. It's about being fully engaged with our world. And when there are things in the world that need to be changed, we have to be change agents. Work towards changing them in order to alleviate suffering. Because it's not all about just changing our attitudes. There is suffering out in the world caused by systemic problems. For example, the legacy of the way people of color are treated in the United States, going back to the enslavement of people of color from Africa, bringing them on boats to the U.S., putting them on plantations, oppressing and killing them. Um, And then, you know, the civil rights era, first the emancipation of slaves by Abraham Lincoln and in that era around the Civil War, then, you know, supposedly that created a freedom, but not really. And then, you know, the, the civil rights era in the 60s supposedly created more freedom, but not really. Jim Crow, all that. And today we have this, in the United States, this system of a funnel for specifically for men of color to go from school to jail, prison. And there's there's a system of mass incarceration of black people in the United States, people of color. And that is one of these things that we're talking about that's a systemic problem that's deeply complex and hard to address. And it's largely ignored in our society. It's not talked about but it needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. But coming back to what we've been talking about here, the skillful way to address it is not to go to war in our minds, but to come from a place of peace within ourselves and know with clarity what is the right action that I can take that will help diminish this system of suffering, will help move, move towards... A solution, um, even if it's just one small action that will help one person who's trapped in this suffering, you know, on one day, that's something to contribute to to ending that injustice, that suffering. So, like Pema says, you know, am. We always have that choice, you know, like like Viktor Frankl said, that choice can't be taken away from us about how we respond to things in each moment. And we have to ask ourselves, am I going to practice peace or am I going to go to war? And we can say that not only in relation to the things you're talking about, like the systemic injustices and problems in society that need to be addressed, but relating to ourselves, right here, right now, on our meditation cushion. In this moment, relating to myself, am I going to practice peace, or am I gonna go to war? Am I going to war with myself, struggling to change myself, thinking about all the things that are wrong with me, uh, you know, getting caught up in some trip about who we think we should be? Let's go into war with ourselves. Let's go into war with reality. And psychologically, the outcome of that warfare is the same as the outcome of the warfare we see in the world. It creates suffering. In extreme cases, it leads people to kill themselves, you know, because they're suffering so much. Or to fall into a deep depression and need, need clinical treatment to get out of it, or to act unskillfully in their relationships and cause, you know, a marriage to break up, or to lose their job because the attitude they brought into the workplace was so problematic for everyone. Do you see how this just gets repeated in all these different areas of our lives? It's all about whether we are practicing peace or we're going to war with ourselves and with reality. So practicing peace, that's the word we started out with, right? Shanti. Shanti means peace. It's something that we have to do in every moment. Because it's not like we just achieve peace and then we always have it every moment is different and we have to respond in every moment in one way or the other so it's about continually choosing peace choosing peace in this moment, this moment, this moment and not being indifferent to the injustices that we see doing, being engaged doing what we can to change them but not coming at it with the mindset of warfare. Because then we'll just magnify the problems. Anyone else have a question? Yes. Yes. <coughs> death diminish mm-hmm. and others who have yet to see that tend to take that as a, 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 a want to die mm-hmm. and uh, how how can you communicate without having to get them to go through the same practice as me to understand that I don't want to die I just am not always looking to be afraid of it and to yes. treat it as something so negative yes what a great question Buddhism is full of um, teachings and reminders that are trying to Teachings and and practices that are trying to remind you that Death is real Because that's what we tend to forget Like or, or we don't want To look at it. So we pretend it's not there. We're like the ostrich that sticks its head in the sand and Pretends that you know the thing that's scary is not there And it thinks it's protecting itself that way. But death is real. Death is going to come to each one of us. At one point or another. And we don't know when. And that's one of the things that makes it scary. And we don't have control over it. And we don't know what's going to happen after death if anything happens. We don't know. We have our beliefs. We have our... And we may feel them deeply and be convinced about them. And and they may be true but we don't know because we haven't in this life we we haven't gone over that event horizon you know when in a black hole there's an event horizon what beyond that point uh, not even light can escape and beyond that point everything is going to be drawn into that the reality of that black hole there's no escape and that's death in, in a way there is it's there and it's like this black hole that we don't want to fall into but it's going to take each one of us we don't live forever and our whole society is rigged towards not acknowledging that because it's unpleasant and people who talk openly about death and, like, Adrian recently completed a training and I'm going to be doing it in May about becoming end-of-life doulas. You know, you have birth doulas who help the mother and the child, the child coming into this world, being born, There are also end-of-life doulas who help facilitate the process of leaving this world, leaving behind this body that you were born into, leaving behind the life that you've created, leaving behind your loved ones, leaving behind um, all the work that you've tried to achieve. You have to let it all go because you don't bring it with you when you cross that event horizon. That's scary to us. It sounds like what you're talking about is that you've done a little bit of work on yourself and you're starting to come to terms with that and recognize the reality of it. But when you talk about it to others, it scares them because they're coming from that usual reaction that most people in society have, which is don't talk about death, don't think about it. Um, If you're thinking about it, that means there's something wrong with you because you're probably thinking about death too much and you're thinking about killing yourself or something. They get freaked out and go into all these trips are just basically about the desire to avoid the unpleasant reality the truth of death and to not look at it not look at the reality of it but this is uh, my second book the four reminders um, about a, s- a specific set of teachings in tibetan buddhism called the four reminders um I have many copies of it here, so um, you can get one today if you want. And one of the four reminders is death, like doing practices and doing contemplations that actually help us remember and keep in mind the reality that life is not permanent, that we're gonna die at some point and that we don't know when we're gonna die or how we're gonna die. It might be around the corner like, we might get hit by a bus, or we might get the coronavirus th- that's going around, or we might uh, fall and you know, have an accident or whatever. We'd, you know, it could come suddenly like that, unexpectedly. Or like, I was in the presence of someone who passed away. At the moment she passed, she was one of the nuns at the monastery. She was very old and she had had emphysema for like 11 years. So she gradually declined and she at one point she had throat cancer and that they cleared that up, but then she continued to have the emphysema. And at the moment, at, th- at the very end stage of her life, she had to leave the monastery and go. there was a, the monastery was very isolated in uh, the, the rugged wilderness of a national park in, in, in Nova Scotia in Canada, an hour from cell phone signal an hour from the nearest town with a hospital and a grocery store so she had to be relocated to the hospital in that town an hour away and some of us monks and nuns from the monastery were assigned different shifts to go be with her and make sure she was okay and she had what she needed and to communicate back to the monastery if there was something she needed but basically she was going to that hospital entering the last days weeks of her life and I wrote about this in my, in this book, yeah. Um, it's in the chapter that's about the, f- the, r- the reminder that's about death. She, um, Annie Palmo was her name. Annie is a, an honorific term that means uh, like a, a nun, a respected figure, and her, and her name was um, Annie Palmo. And Annie Pema, Pema children who was her fellow nun from long time back, had recorded for her uh, in her in Pema's voice speaking to Annie Palmo using her name. Had recorded. A reading of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is this text that's traditionally used in Tibet to relate to people who are dying and people who have crossed over and are no longer with us. They believe that those who have crossed over can still hear us, hear hear our voices, and that as they move towards their next life in the bardo, in between lives, they're driven by a lot of karma, you know, towards whatever is going to become next. And a lot of that is negative karma, so they, they might, you know, very tend have a tendency to be confused and, and like caught up in a sort of nightmare state in in that in between space between lives. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead is read in order to to guide them towards uh, a better rebirth in the next life. And So Pema children had recorded this for Annie Palmo and um, Annie Palmo would play that recording continually as she practiced getting ready for death because she knew with emphysema she was going to die at some point in the near future. It ended up being like 10 years of emphysema and everybody kept thinking she was going to die soon and then she would get better and then would come again and then she would get better so it became almost like a running joke like we're sh- she's going to outlive us all um, but eventually she did die and I was in the room I was the only one who was in the room when it happened and if you've ever had the chance to be in the presence of someone when they pass it's something that will transform you forever it's not something that you can forget and it's it was um, it was a great teaching for me, and it was it was something that I I walked away from, and I wasn't the same person. So she practiced trying to free herself from the suffering in this life, the cycle of you know what more religious Buddhists talk about as, you know, the cycle of rebirth. That can be seen as metaphorical or it can be taken literally by some. Um, She listened to that recording right up till the moment she passed. I watched her. And then the breaths, um, there became more space between each breath. 15 seconds before the next inhale and then eventually just she didn't breathe in again there was no convulsing no drama of death but she just didn't take in her next breath after a while and that was it and she and she was guided by that recording that Pema Chodron had given her to go through right through that process the moment of crossing over and it was one of the most uh, powerful things that I've ever witnessed so I'm going to I'm going to close with this because I know we've we've spent a lot of time today you're probably tired I feel a little tired from talking so much but um in this book i talk about and actually i felt very uh, fortunate and grateful to kina mcgregor who wrote um, an endorsement blurb for this book Um, i was very thankful to her for that Um, just to put it in a nutshell the four reminders are basically recognizing the preciousness of our human life and the opportunity that we have in this life for waking up and Reducing suffering, eliminating suffering. That's the first reminder. The second reminder is death. So, recognizing that this precious life that we have right now is, it's not, doesn't last forever. It's going to end at some point, and we don't know when it's going to end. So, during the time that we have here, remember that it's impermanent, and by remembering that, make the best use of it while you have it. Don't get don't get caught up in what usually happens with most people which is thinking that we have all the time in the world there's nothing urgent about doing this practice because you know I'll do it when I get when I retire from my job or whatever we tell ourselves all these things about the time that we think we have but we don't know if we really have that time many of us don't and even if we did you know you think about growing to the age of 80 it goes by like that like, the older I get, the faster time seems to go in my life. You blink and you miss five years. You blink and you miss ten years. Ten years ago, I went into the monastery. It seems like yesterday. Um, the third reminder is, is basically karma, which is remembering that our actions have consequences, that they create ripples in our lives and in the the lives of people around us because we're engaged with people around us so when we do something positive something that is beneficial in the world or in us we basically feel good we create more happiness Um, and our minds are at ease with that when we do something that is unskillful, creates harm then they're suffering and our minds are not at ease with that because we know it wasn't the right thing to do so we, our, tr- our conscience is troubled we can't we find it more difficult to find clarity and stillness and peace in meditation or yoga because our minds are troubled with the consequences of what we've done we might even have nightmares you know because of what we did and the way it's haunting us So our minds are caught in a lot of vrittis, a lot of fluctuations, because of not recognizing that our actions have consequences. And that those consequences shape how our lives evolve and the experience that we have. In each moment we're choosing what the next moment is going to be like. we don't have full control over external circumstances in the next moment, but we have control over how we react to it. And then the fourth reminder is basically <laughs> recognizing that all the ways that we get trapped in cycles of suffering that we create for ourselves. And recognizing that there's a way to stop doing that And that it's urgent that we stop doing that. So those those are that's the four four reminders in a nutshell. Um, One last question before we close. Anybody? No. All right. I want to thank you so much for your kind attention and for your practice. Because it, it benefits not only you, but all of us. And I look forward to seeing you here or there, in other places, um, in the future. And thank you to everyone who might, I don't know if this thing is even on, but um, everyone who, anyone who might be watching online, thank you for being present. And namaste.
0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to our podcast, Chat and Chai Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. This episode was with Dennis Hunter. He's a local meditation teacher and we're really happy to have him come for one of our Chat and Chai's. We have these talks regularly as a free offering to our community. If you're interested in learning more from Dennis, we'll have a panel discussion coming up February 28th at 6.30 p.m. We will be talking about yoga and trauma. It'll be the second one of its kind. The first one was really successful, so we thought we needed to do a second one. And the Trauma and Yoga panel will consist of Nizinga, She is a public speaker, yoga teacher, and healer. Anne Hurley, a trauma psychotherapist. Dr. Kristen Jones, she's a doctor of health science and licensed mental health counselor. And Dennis Hunter, who you've already met through this podcast. And we'll also have Kino moderating, which is really exciting also always so if you're in town uh join us for the panel february 28th at 6:30 p.m and if you're not in town then we'll have the recording of the panel up on our podcast so be sure to look out for that um thanks for listening and i hope to see you soon namaste